Okay. Welcome to Prairie View. We know what we're doing here. I uh, had no idea that was coming. So, uh, welcome. It's good to have you here if you're a visitor. And uh, we're glad, I'm glad that each and every one of you is here. Let's, let's begin. Uh, we are in our second week of our signs series, apparently. And um, we're using common roadside signs to help us uh, see and understand something about the Christian life. And so it's sort of a metaphor. And the sign that we're going to look at this morning is scenic overlook. And the application is right there in the title, seeing others through God's eyes. And if you've ever driven outside the boundaries of the state of Indiana, you've probably seen one of these signs where it alerts you to something that's coming up as a motorist, that there's some sort of vista that is uh, different or unique or beautiful and in some way worth your while. And likewise, this morning, we're going to be looking at people through God's eyes and seeing in what sense that is a scenic overlook. So grab a Bible that's nearest to you. In my case, it's this one. We have some from the church as well scattered around the room and uh, open it to First Corinthians three. And before we immerse ourselves in God's word, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, the chance that we have to uh, gather before you this morning and seek your face. And I thank you especially for the chance that we have to look at your word, uh, which, which lights our way and guides our path. Lord, the unfolding of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I pray that we would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation this morning to see what you would have for us and that we would have uh, the knowledge of you through the time that we spend this morning, I pray that uh, you would help us to understand the great depth and extent and uh, persistency of the love that you have for your people and uh, that the things that we discussed this morning will be true of your people here at Prairie View. It's in your great name that we pray, Lord. Amen. Okay, you should not need much convincing uh, to believe that we do not naturally see each other through God's eyes. A quick review of recent headlines will show you that there's uh, fractured relationships in the world that prevent us or are the result of us not seeing each other through God's eyes. Uh, Trayvon Martin and the Secret Service, hard at work in Columbia, NFL bounties, those are all easy to see examples, high profile examples of people not seeing each other through God's eyes. But that's not just a problem that is out there in the news. It's also a problem in here, in our, our very midst, in the soul of each of us. Um, take, for example, in the life of someone you may know in the last couple of weeks, a husband gets frustrated with his sick wife because she's too weak to uh, speak up and stop mumbling. A father gets irritated with his daughter because it's bedtime and she wants to go to bed and have Bible stories read to her. But she can clearly see that Real Madrid is playing in a Champions League semifinal and she should know better because it's Cristiano Ronaldo. And come on, kid. And uh, an elder at a church gets irritated with visitors on Easter morning because they don't want to be greeted. They just want to sit there and get their card punched and uh, not talk to anybody and come back on Christmas Eve. And uh, it's uh, pretty ugly. And uh, if you can pray for Terry Blaker, we'd all appreciate that. I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> so what's wrong with us? Why do we treat each other this way? What prevents us from seeing people through God's eyes? We're going to see this problem surface twice in the Corinthian church, and then we're going to explore how it shows up in our own lives as well. And we'll see that the same solution that worked in Corinth 
is the solution for us as well. It's going to be important for us to uh, get down to the root of the problem because there's a lot of surface solutions that uh, don't actually help address the issues in question. For instance, in this week's, this month's Progressive Dairyman, I'm sure you all read this as soon as it hit your mailboxes on Monday, uh, but in case you overlooked it, the column by Yvette Tenney, sort of the, uh, the human interest column, uh, the title was Getting Keys to Getting Along with People. And at the very end, she says, uh, we don't have Christ's insight, so we shouldn't judge the apparent sins of others, but we can't imagine ourselves in their situation. We can try to understand their motives and their reasons. And, um, you know, that's that's not bad. That's pretty good advice. It would be helpful for us to uh, put ourselves in the shoes of others and imagine what they're dealing with. Um, but it's only going to be a little bit of help for a little while. Uh, it's going to be helpful for me when I'm driving on Allisonville behind whichever one of you it is that's going 35 miles an hour. And it's helpful for me to remember that, you know, it's probably somebody's grandmother. Maybe it's Aaron's grandmother, and she's lost, and she's confused, and she's probably asking her dog for directions because she doesn't know how to work her phone. And it's helpful for me to remember that. It helps soothe my rage, but it doesn't transform my character. It doesn't change my nature. It's just an external form of behavior modification. And uh, morality isn't going to help us. But uh, a, a guy like me, a, a harsh and proud and impatient and irritable guy, isn't the right person to deliver a self-help message on uh, interpersonal relationships. But what I can do is take you to the Word of God and show you what God has done on our behalf uh, that will lead to true and lasting and God-glorifying change. The church in Corinth was large, and it was wealthy, and it was very spiritually blessed, and it was really, really messed up. There were several significant problems in the church, and Paul wrote to them, 1 Corinthians, addressing these issues, not least of which was that... Um, there were factions developing in the church, different camps where each one was saying that they followed some specific apostle or other leader. And Paul knew that was pretty destructive. And so he wrote to them and uh, he set out to diagnose and fix the root of the problem. And if you look in First Corinthians chapter three, we will begin in verse three. Paul says this, you are still of the flesh for while there is jealousy and strife among you. Are you not of the flesh? And behaving only in a human way. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What's Paul getting at? What's the problem with being in the flesh? What's, what's the big deal? The Bible, when it refers to the flesh, is not referring to the uh, physical nature of our existence. It's referring to our sinful nature. It's referring to that part of us that from birth wants to reject God and pursue sin. And I know it's sort of un-American to say that even from the get-go, right out of the gate, you didn't have a chance. You were born pursuing sin and rejecting God. It's, uh, it's just unfair, right? And it seems like a loaded game. But uh, that's the condition that we're in, and there's no use pretending otherwise. And Paul refers to it as the flesh. And we'll see that phrase throughout the scriptures we read this morning. The fact that they were sinful human beings made them act that way. Back in verse 1, he says, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. They were Christians, but they were brand new. 
They were infants in Christ. They needed to be discipled. They needed to be uh, taught the truth and taught how to follow the way and have this Christian life shared with them so that they could change in their thinking what they believed to be true, their doctrine, and so they could also change in their behavior because the flesh was still exerting an influence over the way they thought and the way that they acted. They had spiritual life, but they were acting merely human. The Corinthians embraced Paul's correction, and they obeyed. But even though they obeyed and uh, paid heed to what he said, some of his words were pretty harsh, and they stung a little bit. And the enemy saw an opportunity to drive a wedge between the church that Paul had planted and Paul himself. False teachers came into the church, and they made accusations against Paul, specifically in the way that he carried out his Ministry, And so out of the concern that Paul felt for these people, he wrote to them again. He wrote second Corinthians and uh, not to defend his own reputation or defend his honor, but to keep them from being led astray. Back in first Corinthians, they were viewing each other through the flesh and that led them to uh, be factionalized. In second Corinthians, they were failing to view Paul through God's eyes. They were using fleshly vision, vision that was merely human. So in 2 Corinthians, which is where we're headed now, heading over to chapter 5, Paul reminds them of some specific aspects of the gospel and how they drove him to behave in ways that they would consider somewhat scandalous. Paul said that he hated to have to defend himself, but he wrote to them, chapter 5, verse 12, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. He's willing to look foolish and suffer persecution, preach an offensive message, always be moving about from place to place and write really severe letters, not because he wants people to like him, but because, as he says in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. One of the challenges I had in my preparation this week is trying to figure out what is he talking about? Why does he go to the love of Christ? That seems like the sort of thing that Christians say when they want to shut down a conversation. It's like a spiritual get lost. Just, you know, talk about the love of Christ. That's what makes me do what I do. And it doesn't really mean anything. So uh, I had to try to figure out what was going on here. He, um, he speaks of the love of Christ because uh, it was love that was the motivation for Christ to go to the cross and die for us so that we could have life. Therefore, it was also Paul's motivation for going to the nations with the message of the cross so that more people could have life. He continues in verse 14, for the love of Christ controlled us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for Christ who, for their sake, died and was raised. Translation, Jesus endured the cross so that we could have true life. And he did that because he loved his people. He did that for Paul. So Paul was motivated to plant churches and endure suffering so that others could hear about Jesus and have life. We sang about that this morning, right? Who you love, I love. How you serve, I serve. If this life I lose, I will follow you. That was Paul's motivation. And it flowed from Jesus' motivation of love, which is why he, he did all this in the first place. He's saying, come on, Corinthians, 
Jesus died for us so that we could have life, so that we could truly live for him. Because of this great love that he has for you and this great love that he has for me, I'm willing to embarrass myself for the sake of the gospel. And uh, because of Christ's work on the cross, I do everything differently. Because of Christ's work on the cross, I view everything differently. Transitioning to the language of sight in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. To regard others according to the flesh is the opposite of seeing people through God's eyes. It is merely human. In order to see others through God's eyes, we need spiritual sight. Because in our merely human condition, we are spiritually blind. We have the same problem. It's not just a Corinthian problem. It's, it's our problem. I see myself through the flesh, so I see myself wrongly. I see you guys through the flesh, so I see you wrongly. Put it the other way around. If I'm seeing through God's eyes, I can see myself correctly. And in viewing you through God's vision, I can see you correctly. And I can even see if perhaps you have spiritual sight yourself so that we can grow in Christ together. And I spent a long time this week trying to find an illustration or an example or an analogy that would help us understand the depth of uh, the problem. It's not just a matter of uh, glasses on, glasses off. It'd be nice if we could wear godly glasses all the time because we're spiritually blurry. No, it's a, a deeper problem than that. And finally, on Tuesday, an example occurred to me, but unfortunately, it's uh, perhaps going to be slightly offensive and maybe a little bit inappropriate for church. But I think that's going to work in our favor because it should help us understand the severity of the problem that we are dealing with. So, how many of you, how many of you are familiar with the concept of beer goggles? I was. Some. Okay. I'm trying not to go for the easy laugh here because we could make this rather silly, but in fact, it is a rather shameful concept. And if you're unfamiliar with it, this is how it works. You're out in public in a social context and uh, you spot a member of the opposite sex and they are ugly. Okay. And uh, then something mysterious happens through the course of the evening, through the mediation of an excessive quantity of alcohol. This person who seemed so very plain a few hours before is now all of a sudden starting to look pretty good. And they're funny, too. And if you had your wits about you, you'd realize that something similar was happening on their end and that you're looking a whole lot better than you did earlier as well. As Wikipedia puts it, the beer goggles are considered to have distorted the wearer's vision, making unattractive people appear beautiful or at least passably attractive. So in the PG version, uh, you strike up a conversation with this person and uh, it goes smoothly and uh, you exchange contact information. You agree to see each other again and you uh, snap a photo, a commemorative photo on your phone and um, and you go home and you sleep it off and you wake up the next morning and you uh, have a headache and a fuzzy memory and a lighter wallet and a disturbing picture on your phone of somebody that bears precious little resemblance to the person you're chatting up the night before. And the, the shame of it sets in the, the overconsumption and the misbehavior and the what might have been and uh, the loss of control and the embarrassment of having been seen in the company of somebody so, so terribly ugly. And as a side note, 
for our youth and for everybody. This is an avoidable situation, okay? This is not an essential part of the college experience. You can get through just fine without ever experiencing anything like this because it's not nearly as glamorous as I've made it sound. Now, do we understand the concept of, of beer goggles then? You drink too much, you become intoxicated, other people start to look cute, and um, you find yourself to be a little bit charming. Some of you might wonder if uh, the same effect is true of preaching, making lackluster preaching more interesting. I recommend you not find out. Now, consider our problem this morning, not the preaching, but the viewing through others, uh, viewing others according to the flesh. It's pretty much the opposite of beer goggles because uh, it's our everything gets inverted and it's our full time natural condition born from birth. And let's call this phenomenon flesh goggles. Viewing people through the flesh, the eyes of the flesh, your spiritual blindness causes you to consider yourself wrongly, usually more positively than is warranted. And in that regard, it's kind of similar to beer goggles. The flesh goggles also cause you to view others uh, slightly more negatively than they really ought to be viewed. Sometimes that's cruelly reversed and you view yourself as worthless and hopeless and beyond hope, whereas everybody else is superior. Now, remember, you are born wearing flesh goggles. It is your condition from birth, and it's all the vision that you would ever know apart from the work of God. With flesh goggles on, you are prone to think that your sin is not that big a deal, that you just need a little help, a leg up, fresh coat of paint, and everything is going to be all right. We are born with a proud and vain, self-sufficient attitude that thinks that uh, we can handle this, we can do better, we can turn over a new leaf, and everything is going to be fine with God with just a few modifications or uh, conversely, you see yourself as so bad and so wicked and so hopeless and beyond hope that even the love of Christ cannot reach you because it's just that awful and you're cut off from hope. Both of those, of course, equally wrong. Um, other people, when you're wearing flesh goggles, come off a little bit worse with our flesh goggles. We are harsh with others where we are lenient with ourselves. There's alienation, an attitude of us versus them, and there's a mistrust and misunderstanding of um, hostility towards people and groups that we don't uh, intuitively understand, people that aren't our kind, like us, our tribe. Our flesh goggles view us to view others as resources to be exploited or as threats to be eliminated. Our flesh goggles convince us that the outward appearance of a thing reveals the internal truth of uh, its character, whether good or it's bad. All of that examples that we had at the beginning of the message flow from viewing others through our flesh goggles, according to the flesh. So Paul has exposed the problem here, um, but he's not done. He hasn't yet driven down to the root of the problem. Let's look again at verse 16. We once regarded Christ according to the flesh. Excuse me. <laughs> From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though. Let me start this again. Verse 16. We once regarded Christ according to the flesh. Underneath the problem of seeing each other through flesh goggles is the problem that we see Christ according to the flesh and we see him wrong. When he had his earthly ministry, were people perceiving Christ correctly? When he, at the age of 30, started teaching and saying that he was the Messiah, the folks from his hometown said, come on, we know who you are. We know your father. We know your mother. What do you think you're doing? 
stop it, you're being silly. And his brothers thought that he had lost his mind. And eventually, he ended up getting himself executed on a Roman cross. And um, Isaiah talks about how that crucified man we naturally view as um, marred and beaten and cursed by God and afflicted, marginalized, poor, contemptible. Today, we also consider him perhaps offensive because he makes rather exclusive truth claims. Or uh, we pretend that he was a nice preacher man whose preachings were hijacked by his disciples who just wanted to build an empire. And um, we keep him at arm's length the way the Pharisees did, lest he get too close and threaten what we really, really care about. In chapter 2, Paul says that to the sinful mind, the truths about Jesus smell like death, and they lead to death through the eyes that are uh, covered in flesh goggles. When we share the gospel with our community, some people will hear and believe and receive it because God has been working on correcting their vision. But other people will say, ew, yuck, you reek, you have the stench of Jesus all over you. And if you think that's putting it a little strong, Go online to any mainstream news source and read an obituary of Chuck Colson. And the obituary will be fairly neutral, but then when you get to the comments section, you'll see what people really think of the work that God did in Colson's life and the transformation that was there and what people think about his God. And it's pretty ugly. So why are we hammering home this metaphor about sight and vision? Paul has driven down to the root of the problem seeing Jesus incorrectly. So it should come as no surprise that the solution to the problem is seeing Christ in the right way. In verse 16, he said, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. How does that happen? How does that change take place? If you go back to the previous chapter, chapter 4, verse 6, Paul is still using the same language of sight, and he says, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's new vision and new life that comes when God breaks through and cracks through our flesh goggles and reveals to us Christ as he really is. Not as a crucified convict, but as a crucified savior. Not as a buried failure, but as a risen conqueror. And not as a simple man of the flesh like us, but as the very son of God. When we see Christ clearly, this is probably the main point of the message this morning, when we see Christ clearly, everything else begins to be clear as well. And we will not be able to see anything clearly until we see Christ clearly. And that's uh, the, the point of why we go to the Bible and spend so much time here. So we want to see Christ clearly as he's revealed in his word. Paul says that this work that God does is so deep and so profound that it amounts to a new work of creation, a new life. Back into chapter 5 where we were before, continuing into verse 17. We once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, hang on to that phrase for later. If anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Behold, the language of look, see, vision. The new has come and the old has passed away. So how does this help? How do we get from believing certain things are true about Jesus over to our behavior has changed and our relationships improve? When we learn the implications of who Jesus is and what he did for us, then we see how it will affect every aspect of our life. So 
in first Corinthians, the church was divided into factions and Paul deployed the gospel by reminding them that uh, here in the church, everyone serves one Christ. And we are all on the same team and we're all undeserving servants chosen by one savior. So the problem of factionalism is countered by the doctrine of the singular uniqueness of the gospel doctrine applied into a change of behavior. In second Corinthians, false teachers were trying to make the church distrust Paul. Paul applied the gospel by reminding them that God's work was a work of reconciliation, reconciling people to God and reconciling people to each other. And Paul's life was to advance the work of that reconciliation. They were seeing him wrongly because they were seeing him according to the flesh. They needed to stop regarding him according to the flesh and start remembering the work that God was doing. The breach in the relationship was healed, and we do believe that it was healed, because of the doctrine of reconciliation. In our lives, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, our relationships are fractured because we are born seeing each other according to the flesh and we view each other that way. What is it about the gospel that's going to go to work in our situations? How do we apply the good news of Jesus to our own fleshly vision? Your specific application will depend, of course, on your specific situation. In order to help get you thinking uh, about how you might apply the gospel to yourself, let's consider this question. If we're supposed to be seeing people through God's eyes... How does God see people? Our lives aren't very pretty. And how are we going to get from the mess that we're in to scenic overlook? At the end of the day, God sees us uh, in really only two categories. And it'd be helpful if we remember this as the way that God sees us so that we can uh, use it to help see each other correctly. There's two choices. People are either in their sins or they are in Christ. And those are the only two options. There's no in between. We are born in our sins, but when God does his work and he looks at those who are his, he sees them in Christ. There's a hundred places in the Bible we could go to explore this, but because we see both sides of that uh, so well in the first part of Ephesians, let's turn a few pages to our right over to Ephesians chapter two and then to chapter one. We're going to look at first what Paul says in Ephesians about what it's like to be in your sins. And then we'll recover from what we see by looking at what it means to be in Christ. Start in verse one of chapter two. This is how our lives begin. This is what it means to not be in Christ, to remain in your sin. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now, that is pretty grim if you take the Bible at its word, and we do here. I recommend you do the same. So, uh, look at verse 4. Paul doesn't stop there. Verse 4 starts with, but God. Okay, that's a tremendous transition there in chapter 2. And to get the full effect of this transition, we'll go back to chapter 1, where Paul speaks at more length about what it means to be in Christ. Uh, I'm going to read verse 3, and I recommend that on your own time, perhaps this afternoon or sometime this week, you read all the way through the end of the passage in verse 14. And in there you will see 10 unique, different aspects of what it means to be 
in Christ. There's 10 of them. And I'm going to show you one of them and then uh, zip through the other nine and so that you can see them in the Bible on your own time. So over to chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. Continuing through the passage, you'll see that in Christ, we are chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. In Christ, we are predestined for the grace of adoption. In Christ, we are redeemed and forgiven. That's kind of a twofer there, redeemed and forgiven. In Christ, we can see God's plan and his purpose revealed. In Christ, all things are united. In him, we have an inheritance according to having been predestined. Does he talk about predestination that much? Yes, he really does. That's a different day. In Christ, we have our hope. In Christ, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And tenthly, in Christ, we believed. We believed the truth of the gospel that was preached to us. That's 3 through 14. Verses 3 through 14. Those are the blessings that are found in Christ. Those are the things that are true of a believer in Christ. When we view a believer through God's eyes, that's what we should be seeing. Application time. We'll start where it hurts, with me. And then we'll poke on you for a little bit, and then we'll have an illustration where a couple of volunteers will come up and help me uh, preach the rest of the message. Hold your horses, Tom. I can see you wiping your brow. It's soon. Soon. How does this work for me? In what ways do I view other people according to the flesh? And in what ways does the gospel correct that? I fit the mold of thinking too highly of myself and too critically towards others. Too much and too often about me, too little and too infrequently about uh, the rest of you. My lofty opinion of myself and my critical opinion of others flows from an insufficient view of my need for a savior and who my savior is and the work that he did for me. And the way forward is for me to launch into each day by getting a refreshed view of Christ and who he is and what he did. Christ, the substitute for my punishment. Christ, the savior from my sins. Christ, who is my master, the ones who the one who sustains me in my ongoing work and the one who is uh, the sum of all my hope for the future. If I can be reminded early and often through the course of a day about uh, the ridiculousness of my pride and the futility of my ability and conversely, what is true of me in Christ, then I should be able to continue to make progress in shedding the flesh goggles and seeing others through God's eyes, for which we will all be very pleased, I'm sure. Now, how about you? My problem is rather general and deals with everybody. Perhaps you have a more specific problem. Somebody in your workplace, somebody in your neighborhood, uh, somebody in your own family, perhaps, that you are uh, failing to see as God does. Maybe it's a group of people, some form of uh, prejudice or bigotry that's preventing you from seeing others according to uh, the way that God sees them. Maybe you fail to see yourself through God's eyes or you only uh, see uh, your sins and your failures and not all the things that are true of you in Christ, how he's made you holy and pure and liberated in Christ. Maybe there's a problem with the way that you view Christ and you don't know him sufficiently well, or maybe you don't view Christ at all. 
this morning, there's an opportunity for you to come and see Christ the right way for the first time and embrace him and own him as your Lord and as your Savior. So let's have uh, an illustration. I hope it will be fun and helpful. It, uh, I'm going to put most of the pressure here on my volunteers. So I've done my part in preparation. If this doesn't work, then it's on them. Uh, can I have my two volunteers come up? Tom and Megan. Big hand for Tom and Megan. We are going to walk through the stages of their life. We're going to walk through the stages of their life all the way from their birth through their uh, through the time of their death and beyond. And Tom, can you grab uh, Miss Phoenix's or that's Erica's microphone this morning? And Megan, can I have you come over to the left and take the uh, handheld microphone, please? Okay. pretend you're not up here yet. I meant to have you sit down in the front row. So just pretend you're not here before anybody was created, before anybody was born. Good. Perfect. (laughs) Before anything happened, before the foundation of time, God Uh, knew who his people were and what his plan of salvation was. And uh, he created Adam and Eve in perfect innocence and placed them in the Garden of Eden. And they had fellowship with him. They were innocent of any sin, but they were ignorant of many aspects of God's character. Because they never sinned, they... uh, they, they had never known good and evil, and so they never knew God as a righteous judge or a God of wrath or as a God of mercy and grace. They never knew him as a God who pursues sinners and uh, makes promises and establishes covenants and keeps his promises. They didn't know God as a redeemer. They were innocent, but they were ignorant. They simply knew him as a creator and a provider. Uh, And because God had made them as free moral agents, they were free to choose to do right. And they were also free when tempted to do wrong. So how are we to view Adam and Eve in their uh, original created state? How did God view them? Uh, Pastor Ryan is doing Genesis 3 next week. I believe that's that's the plan. Plans change. Don't hold him to it. Um, But uh, since he's planning on going to Genesis 3, let's go to uh, Ecclesiastes 7.29. God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. After the fall, everything changed. They were no longer free. They became spiritually dead and blind, and they were slaves to sin. They were in sin, and they were not in the garden, and they were not in the right relationship with God. Okay, well, history happens, and one day our uh, two volunteers here are born. And to help us remember which stage of life you guys are in... We will have props. If you thought there was a guitar in here, then uh, thank you for visiting Prairie View, because this is a prop case. So, you're born, and to help you, your choice. You can come back into the light now, Tom. Okay. Our folks are born, and uh, being born of Adam and Eve, they are of... Can you scooch a little bit more into the light, too? You're in the shadow over there. They have uh, been born of Adam and Eve, so they are born as... Sinful nature in the flesh. They're born of the flesh. They have a sinful nature. And uh, let's have each of you read a verse from Scripture. Megan, can I have you please read the Romans verse that will shortly be appearing behind you or on the back screen? Either way. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. One trespass. Adam's trespass led to condemnation for all men, including the three of us and all those folks, too. Tom, the first Corinthians verse, please. For in Adam, all die. In Adam, all die. Their little baby hearts and their little baby natures are sinful and corrupt. But yet, they have not committed 
yet any sins themselves. They're sinful by nature, but not yet sinful in their deeds. But it's only a matter of time, because being humans, they have the means and they have the motives to sin, and it's only a matter of time before your flesh seizes the opportunity and springs forth in spiritual death and blindness. So, to help us remember your true condition, let's have you please don a, a mask. Flesh goggles. If you could, please, to help us remember that you are blind. Seriously. There's something in it for you. Don't worry. Don't worry. Oh, can I hold your bottle for you, Tom? Would you like to? Just, just until you get it situated over your eyes. It's okay. temporary. It's temporary. Thank you, sir. Okay. Okay. So, in their initial conditions, on their day of birth, how does God view them? How should we view them? Not as pure, innocent little angels, but as what they are. Made in the image of God but born in the flesh, afflicted with the same curse that affects all of us, dead in sin and blind. Being made in the image of God gives honor and dignity to every human being, whether American or immigrants, Republican or Democrat, everybody made in the image of God has that human dignity. Um, but everybody being born of Adam and Eve is born as a sinner, and that gives us great cause for uh, weariness, and that's a great burden. Okay, let's say that our two heroes begin to grow up. Please return your bottles. Thank you. You're passing beyond that stage. And um, adjust your goggles for one moment so that you can see what is coming next. They begin to grow up. They begin to take responsibility for their actions. They conform to some sort of moral code and to represent growing up and knowing right from wrong. You go out and get a job for which you earn a pay packet. Please note that I have not deducted your tithe from that, so I'll uh, take that at your convenience. And you're welcome to open that if you wish. And likewise for you, a few tithes from the Walker Archive. Just a matter of time before they go to Goodwill. Okay. You can keep those too if you like, I guess. I'll need a receipt for taxes, though. Okay. Boy, oh boy, where are we? Okay, right, yes. Eventually, uh, they start to behave in a moral fashion. Now, they are still spiritually blind. Readjust your goggles, please. Thank you. Being of the flesh, they are utterly unable and unwilling to come to God on his terms. Smile for the camera, Tom. And uh, they might be able to want to come to God on their own terms, which is religion, pursuing God in your own terms. Or they could turn and reject God and pursue the path of sin. But either way, they are blind to Christ, who he is and what he did for his people. The contrast here is that they are spiritually dead, and yet their hearts, their hearts are still hard at work in what Calvin called it is an idle factory, constantly churning out and uh, pursuing some new substitute for God. Let's have uh, Megan, please adjust your goggles so that you can read the scripture on the screen from 2 Corinthians 4 that describes your condition in which you were born. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Okay, minds blinded and not able to see. They can't see the light. Thank you. Thank you. That's very helpful. So how does God view them? How should we view them? 
We should be under no illusions about their condition, okay? We should never be surprised when sinners act like sinners, when the lost act like they are lost, because that is the condition that they are in. The concept of, oh, he's such a good kid, or in spite of everything, I really believe that people are good at heart. Uh, Those are cultural concepts that don't square very well with what the Bible tells us about ourselves. I'm beautiful in my way, because God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby. I'm born this way. Okay? Is Lady Gaga viewing people according to the flesh? No. No. She's been a great gift to preachers because she's able to capture so well the, uh, the essence of the age in which we live and put it in a format that preachers can hold up and say, no, no, this, this is wrong. Okay? She is not viewing people according to the way that God sees them. We are born a certain way, and God makes no mistakes, but we are born according to the flesh. God made man upright. We have sought out many schemes. These guys are sinners, and we shouldn't be surprised when they behave accordingly. But we should also not leap to any conclusions about their future. We don't know who God is going to work in. We don't know the plans that he has for these folks. We don't know. Either one of these characters might have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, as you'll see in Ephesians 1. If so, they will be saved when the time is right. The Lord knows those who are his, but we have no idea. So we can go out and confidently speak to anybody and everybody sharing the news of Christ, knowing that some will reject and some will receive that word of Christ. We don't know, but God does know. So anybody, it could happen to anybody. And if it hasn't happened to you yet and you're here, it could happen to you too. So uh, watch out for that. For the sake of our illustration, uh, let's assume that it happens. God breaks into uh, Tom's life through the preaching of Scripture and the uh, revealing of the Word. And he can see. He can see his sin and he can see Christ, what Christ did. And he is saved. He believes and he is born again. Now, Tom, you are in Christ, and every spiritual blessing is now yours in Christ. And all that stuff that we read in Ephesians 1 is true of you. Justified and adopted and redeemed and and all the rest. You can keep this if you want. You don't have to wear it, but... You're going to pass? Okay. In Christ, you've been saved. But you are still in the flesh, right? He still has a sinful body. And that flesh is still quite strong because all his life he's been thinking according to the flesh and acting according to the flesh. He has those patterns of behavior and patterns of thought. And it will be a lifetime of work for God to renew Tom's mind through the scriptures and the work of the spirit so that he can have his attitudes and behaviors changed from the inside out. Tom, let's have you read this verse from Galatians 2, please, about your new condition. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Excellent. Excellent. Lives life by faith, but lives life in the flesh. I'm going to read here this quote from Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, and he says this better than I could. The gospel of justifying faith means that while Christians are, in themselves, still sinful and sinning, yet in Christ, in God's sight... They are accepted and righteous. So we can say 
that we are more wicked than we ever dared believe, but more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope at the very same time. So you're in Christ, righteous in God's sight, and yet you're still in this fleshly body, so you're going to be plagued by the presence of sin throughout the rest of your life. How does God view this man? How should we view him? Here's another road sign for you. Under construction. Tom is a work in progress. God has begun a work, and he's not done yet, though he will be faithful to complete that work. Don't expect the work in Tom's life to be done overnight. Don't judge him harshly because it's taking him uh, a month to learn, you know, what you learned in a decade. Don't be impatient with Tom. God makes everything beautiful in its time, and he's not done with Tom yet. Okay, let's wrap this up. Uh, The moment of death, it's at hand. You're retired, so I will take away your neckties unless you want to keep them. Oh, my goodness. I'm so sorry. My guitar stand fell off its case because I uh, removed this last object from it. Uh, Hold out your hand, one of them, please. Excellent. Into it. I'm putting a walking stick because you're old and infirm. And for you, you can see what's going on. Okay. They are, uh, it's been a while since we've seen those around here. Six months since uh, they've come. That's, that's wonderful. Uh, let's talk to our lifelong sinner over here. There's been no change in her condition. Uh, she's been rejecting God and living in sin all her life. That's uh, her natural condition. Please adjust your goggles and uh, read for us from John chapter 1. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. To all who receive him, to all who believe in his name, he gave the right to be sons of God, children of God. Is it too late for you? After a lifetime of rejecting God and pursuing your sin, is it too late? No. No, the right answer is no. Say it strong with me. No. As long as God is sustaining your life, there is room for him to work. Even at the finish line, God can open your eyes. Sorry, there you go. And, oh, you want it or shall I throw it to the crowd? You can throw it to the crowd. Okay. It almost made it there. Okay. Don't just look at it disdainfully. Pick it up, Mitchell. Yeah. So it is never too late. As long as there is life, there is room for God to work. And he can, he can save. Even at the, the hour of death and the darkest hour in the, the most evil heart, God can save. There is always, always hope. Let's consider uh, what remains for those now, both of them in Christ, who stand on the threshold of death. Uh, Megan, let's have you please read the verse from Colossians, where the death that Paul speaks of is not your imminent physical death, but the uh, death to sin that united you to Christ. Go ahead, please. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Uh, Read that last part one more time, please. Then you will also appear with him in glory. We will also appear with him in glory. That is something to look forward to for sure. Tom, 1 John, please. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. We shall see him as he is. One day, when we are glorified with Christ, there will be no more contrasts, no more confusion, no more flesh goggles, no more sin, no more blindness, no more alienation, and no more need to 
remove our fleshly goggles so we can see through the eyes of God because we will know perfectly and enjoy perfect vision. Someday we won't need sermons. We won't need preaching. We won't need hard work in our flesh uh, because we will have glorified, sin-free, perfect vision, resurrection bodies. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Uh, guys, you can go ahead and have a seat and the band can come on up and I will. Yep. Thank you to our volunteers. Let me close this in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you that we've been able to uh, look into your word and see what it is that you tell us about us. Thank you that you are so gracious as to give us in writing a true indictment of the condition in which we're really in. And thank you that you open the eyes of your people so that we can see. We can see our condition. We can see how we have rebelled against you. And we can see that even though we are sinners who have rejected you, even though you've done that, yet in your love, you came and you, bo- uh, you came and you were born as one of us and you lived a life with a bunch of sinners that viewed you wrongly. Thank you that you endured that life and the death. Thank you that you rose again so that we could have life. And thank you that we can see you as you are, not just in your book, but uh, in the lives of your people as you work and transform them into your image and your likeness. And thank you that you are continuing that work in your people all the way to the end until the day when we enter your presence last little bits of sin and selfishness and pride will be burned away and we see you as you are uh, with with unveiled face and behold your glory and, uh, and be with you forever. I pray that we can be looking ahead to that day this week and also working hard in the meantime to glorify you through the way that we study your word and pursue you and sing your praises. It's in your great name that we pray. Amen.